0: Our Old Testament text is the 63rd Psalm. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. That line in the first verse resonates, doesn't it, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, We find ourselves in a world that's gone bad because of sin. It wasn't meant to be this way. But it's like that. We find ourselves in a dry and weary place. I, uh, a few years ago, came across something that I thought was uh, worth uh, noting and kind of remembering, in case I ever find myself actually out in the wilderness, uh, in a place where uh, you know I'm exposed to the elements and I've got to strive to survive. There are basically three things that you need to do in order to survive in the wilderness. And uh, we've given, we're given a um, helpful timeline for each one of those things, um, or maybe a good way to put it is a deadline, because if you don't get those things done by the time that we're, you're told that you should have them done by, you may be dead. So the first thing is you have three weeks to find food. You have three days to find water. And you have three hours to make shelter. So now you know. If you find yourself surviving a plane crash out there in the Andes or something, that's the thing that you need to keep in mind. Those three things need to be done and in that order. And in this psalm, each of those things is addressed. Isn't that interesting? But it, they're not addressed in that order. Uh, we begin with water. That's what we see early on in the, this psalm. My God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We're told by scientists that our planet, the Earth, exists in what's known as the Goldilocks Zone. Surrounding a star, there's a sort of range in which liquid water can exist, can actually sort of be there on the surface of a planet. And so when uh, scientists look for exoplanets, in other words, planets outside our solar system that go around to other stars, uh, they're trying to figure out whether or not that the, those planets that they see, evidence for, are, are in the Goldilocks zone. So if you get too close, obviously, it's too hot. The water evaporates, turns into a gas, and then just ceases to be on the planet at all at a certain point. Think of Mercury. If you're too far away, then everything is frozen solid, and life can't exist in ice. It might be preserved, but it doesn't do too well in frozen ice. It's in the Goldilocks zone, where you can have steam and, you know, ice, but liquid water is what you really want. It's in that zone that life can exist. And uh, this is implied here that uh, water is life, right? A dry and weary land, a place where there is no water. It's hard to live in a place where there is no water. You need water to survive. And uh, so that's what we we look for. But sin has turned our world into a kind of desert where we find ourselves uh, essentially dying of thirst because what is really being referred to here is not water literally, but something else that's like water. Or maybe we could say water is like it. Which brings me to the subject of metaphors. You know, there is uh, metaphorical language throughout the Bible, and I think sometimes we look askance at metaphorical language thinking that it's just sort of the province of poets who kind of like take flights of fancy and just make all kinds of crazy, uh, I guess, things or, you know, poems or what have you, songs, and that there's no sort of like real solid. Thing that they're kind of working with. It's all just kind of like stuff in our heads. But there are some problems with that way of thinking about things, particularly if we uh, maintain that the scriptures, which are full of metaphorical uh, speech, actually teach us things that are sound about God, right? So how do we think about metaphors? How, how should we understand them? One of the things to note is that contemporary understandings of of metaphorical speech maintain that there's really no genuine correspondence between the thing that's being referred to and the metaphor that's used to refer to it. It is all in our heads. We make the connection. And consequently, different cultures could come up with different metaphors. And it's kind of like Free for all. Nothing really follows. There's no, because there's no genuine connection between the term that's being used and the thing that's being referred to. But in order to really think that way, you have to take God out of the picture. What you have to have is a kind of materialistic worldview that doesn't take creation into account. Because if there is a creator, it's quite possible that that creator would want to communicate with us. And would provide us a world in which to live that is full of things that refer to what? Spiritual realities, including himself. So when we talk about water and its connection to life, and then we make the leap to God and a connection to spiritual life, it's not a big leap. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's kind of baked into things. The world comes front-loaded with meaning. This is why when people play around with things like gender and sex and imply that there's no real meaning to any of those things, they're playing with the world that God has made and the world that God intends to use and is designed to to be used to, to communicate truths about himself and ourselves to us. There's a lot more at stake in these matters then maybe you have supposed everything's at stake, you could say. But here we see something in the course of this psalm that's remarkable. We see there in verse 3, David say, because your steadfast love is better than life, implying that uh, this steadfast love is even better than water, that's being referred to as a kind of analog to life. And how could that possibly be? Because what would be better than life? I think we kind of intuit it. I think we kind of know deep in our hearts what's being referred to here. The one who is the source of our lives. Who is the source of the good things that we enjoy in this world like water. And who's made the connection between water and the life that he grants us. He is better in life because he's the source of that life. Do you see how that follows? That's what we really long for. That's what we're thirsty for. Now, food and shelter is also addressed in this passage or this psalm. Let's take a look at the verses uh, 5 and 6. Here uh, we're told, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You get kind of that lip-smacking kind of effect. You know, having consumed rich food, and then immediately praising God for all of his goodness to us. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I'll get to that in a minute, but I want to reflect with you a little bit on the nature of food and what food has to say to us about our relationship to God. Wouldn't it be great, or maybe not, to just be able to have like one meal and you'd be good for life? And just one bite and you're good. No more food needed. From that point on, you're set. It'd be kind of like, I don't know, the ever-ready battery that never winds, you know, sort of, like, uh, gets drained. Or something like maybe uh, nuclear fission in a, uh, or is it fusion? I can never keep those two things straight. In a nuclear reactor that propels a sub. I think that sometimes people think about eternal life in that way. It's like, you know, you just kind of get one bite uh, of the tree of life and you're good. You just kind of, like, are made of plastic from that point on. You're indestructible. But isn't it kind of fun that uh, we kind of, on an ongoing basis, need food? I'm a lover of food. I'm looking forward to some fat and rich food for lunch today on Father's Day. And I know a number of fathers are as well. And uh, there's a joy that we can know with regard to the ongoing need to sustain our lives physically And there's a similar ongoing need to sustain our spiritual lives because there's a correspondence, you see, between what we can see in the physical world and what is actually the case in the spiritual world. Another way of saying it is that the physical world that that we dwell in in some sense is a reflection of something even more significant and meaningful because it's eternal. We should enjoy both. It's not as though... Uh, you have to enjoy one at the expense of the other. I like steak and I like Jesus. <laughs> in fact, I love them both and I, I love the Lord even more because the Lord is the source of all good things, including the steak, right? And that's something to keep in mind as we think about all of this. Now, in Scripture, we have allusions to, to food all over the place and the connection that, uh, that uh, we can see between food and, and spiritual life right there in the garden. Remember, in the garden, in the garden. You're in a garden. It's full of food, right? Obviously, other beautiful things as well, but it's full of food. And uh, two trees in particular are worth noting located there. One is a source of life and the other is something that will kill you. Now, you know, I'm referring to the tree of life, which is there in the garden. We're told it's there in the garden, but we're told it's there in the garden after Adam and Eve already ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which kills them. Uh, but it's there the whole time, it's implied, but they choose to eat from the tree that'll kill them, which just goes to show that even at the start, people didn't know what good is. I think I've told this joke many, many times, but I just like telling it so much, and there are some new people here. When I was a kid, I hated pecan pie. Why did I hate pecan pie? It's because I had tasted pecan pie and thought, ooh, why would I want something so delicious? No, it's because I just thought it looked gross, kind of looked like bugs in amber or something. And I'd say, I don't want to eat that. My father would look at me and say, boy, you don't know what good is. I'll eat your pie for you. (laughs) And he would, without apology or even an attempt to help me understand, he would just consume it. I guess it was Father's Day every day for him. (laughs) But anyway, uh, it's kind of like that, you know. I just noted in our Bible study earlier today, if you go out on the street and you were to just walk around and do, you know, man in the street, woman in the street interviews, and you were to ask people, do you want to be happy? 100% of the people you speak with would say, yes, of course. Who wouldn't want to be happy? And then if you were to follow that question up with another question, the question being, are you happy? There'd be a much smaller number of people who would say yes. Which means you can get it wrong. Wrong. You're not an authority even on your own happiness. You need to get in touch with the source of joy and genuine happiness. In other words, you may not know what good is. And most people don't because they have acquired a taste for sin. And they're repelled by what would really be the source of life and happiness in their lives, which is the Lord. In other words, uh, we find ourselves in a situation where our natures have been corrupted. We like what kills us. We're repelled by what gives us life and nourishes us. And we need to acquire a new set of, I guess, taste buds, spiritual taste buds. Now, we see later on in the New Testament that... uh, we uh, are not supposed to live by bread alone. Do you remember that episode with the Lord and the, and, and, and the devil in the wilderness where the Lord is told or tempted to make bread out of stones and then the Lord responds, that it is written, "A man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there's a connection there that's made. And we're told in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then in John's Gospel, the Lord identifies himself with bread. He says not only is he the water of life, he's the bread of life. We're told that in John chapter 6, verse 48. And this is within the framework of bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. His interlocutors, the Jews, challenge him to feed them as Moses fed them in the wilderness with manna from heaven. Now, that's a fabulous story. I I don't know if you've ever thought about the episode with manna. Do you know what the word manna really means in Hebrew? It means, what is this stuff? literally means, what is it? So, they had never seen this stuff before and God is feeding them with it. And then it comes with some rules. Apparently... uh, the manna is only good for one day. If you try to, like, store it, you know, put it in some, some manna jars, <laughs> uh, what happens is it goes bad, you know, the next day. And, and Moses, you know, he warns the Israelites that they shouldn't, like, you know, store up more manna than they need for the day because the Lord will provide what they need the next day. And do you think they believe him? Of course not. He'd only delivered them from the land of Egypt, you know, divided the Red Sea, you know, led them through the wilderness, you know, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But you still couldn't trust this God even after all that. You know, you got to store some stuff up. I mean, you got to have, a, you know, you got to be ready in case, you know, he just kind of like abandons you. And so they store it all up and what happens? It goes bad. It just stinks the whole place up except one day of the week. The day before what? The Sabbath day. Apparently that day the Lord put some preservatives in it because it was good for two days because they weren't supposed to work on a Sabbath day. So they collected on that day for two days. That, I think, tells us a lot about how we are to be dependent upon the Lord in an ongoing way for the bread that truly nourishes us spiritually. And Jesus says to them, when they say, feed us with this bread, he says, I am that bread. And then he goes on to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, again, we're talking about metaphors here. But I think we all know what he's getting at. And as Christians, we need to feed on him, if we are going to have life. And this psalm is getting at that. Then we turn to the matter of shelter. Isn't that a remarkable transition that occurs here? Right there in verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy the shadow of his wings. That's what I'm getting at when I'm referring to shelter. We find shelter in the shadow of his wings. But this is something that's noted to occur in the watches of the night. And I've talked about this before, but I'll bring it up again. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and just had something on your mind that just makes you sweat, cold sweat? Just can't get it off your mind? chills you, kind of freezes even your heart, you're worried, you don't know uh, what you're going to do in order to adjust this particular matter. Isn't it amazing how just as soon as the sun comes up, you're like, I don't know why that was bothering me so much, something that I can deal with, but it's at that point that you need to meditate and to remember the goodness of God. And when you do that, something remarkable happens. We're told here, there in verse uh, six, when I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. What's being referred to there is what that little, well, that little chorus uh, that you know I learned years ago. Count your blessings. You remember that little chorus. Count your blessings. I'm going to. Try to sing it for you. Maybe it'll come to mind. Maybe maybe you don't. you've never heard it, but here's how it goes. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. And when you do that, when you do that, you go from being frightened by the dark, to being under the shadow of God's wings. And you go to sleep. (laughs) So next time you find yourself in that spot, try that. Not just sing the song, but remember what God has done for you. Meditate upon that. Because it will give you the confidence that you need to face the matter that worries you, that concerns you. And you'll find yourself being able to rest. You know, when, when, the, when it's nighttime, the earth enters its own shadow. Isn't that a remarkable thing to consider? When, the earth, when, it, when it, the earth spins, of course, and you find yourself on that point in the earth where now you're in the shadow. It's as though you've turned off, you know, or turned away from the source of comfort and light. But it's in that moment when you find yourself in that shadow, that you can find yourself as well in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty, who's been your help in the past. And that's when you find yourself in the nest, clinging to God. Verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. So it's not just that you're clinging on to God, but the Lord is upholding you at the same time. Now, the way this psalm ends is in a disconcerting way, but also in a comforting way, and it It addresses the subject of enemies. Enemies. Take a look at verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exalt. Where the mouths of liars will be stopped. Enemies. Do you have any enemies? The are real. Um, you know, there's a, that old saying, or that, maybe it's not so old, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. So, you know, you can kind of go through life uh, kind of oblivious to the to the animus and the, and the, and the uh, malintent of other people, because we, after all, you know, kind of dress things up, and we have manners, and we're polite. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the, you know, sort of the, the veil is pulled back, and you see something that lets you know, wow, that person really doesn't like me, <laughs> and I'm such a nice guy. How is that even possible? I remember years ago, when I was uh, in college, I was an RA, a resident assistant, which meant I was in charge of a floor of about 30 to 40 men, young men, well, boys. (laughs) And anyway, so uh, as the RA, you know, I was there to enforce standards, make sure that the rules of the school were observed, and occasionally I'd have to apply a little bit of discipline, you know, confront somebody over something. And I remember when I got my review, and how it works is, you know, all the people who were on the floor had a chance to evaluate my performance. And I think it was like, it was was something like 35 were like, thumbs up, does a great job, and then one guy just hated my guts. He just so happened to be the guy I had to confront a few times. (laughs) And I remember the, uh, the dean of students said, you know, I'm glad there was that one on there. I was getting a little worried <laughs> that you were too popular. They liked you too much, that maybe you had given them some money or something or, you know, to say nice things about you. But every once in a while, you come across somebody who really has it in for you. And what do you do about that? And that corresponds to a spiritual reality as well. We have enemies that are not just flesh and blood Enemies. We have enemies that are out to get us, and historically Christians have identified those enemies as what: the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that weary land that we find ourselves in, that has been turned away from God because of the well, the sinfulness of those who have been given charge over this world. And then there's, um, you know, the devil. Father of lies, who has it in for you. And then that last category, the flesh, that's the one that's the most difficult to accept. That's the inner traitor. That's that part of you that is given over to death. It's that part of you that's seeking to, to take your life. Isn't that odd that there could be some part of you that you have to wage war against in order to live? But that's the way it is. Now the good news is that you're not left to fight this fight alone. In fact, someone else has fought it for you. And the way God fights is remarkable. Have you ever like uh, gone through Scripture and seen all the ways that God uh, sort of overcomes or addresses his enemies? There is the obvious stuff. I mean, like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, fire from the sky, just consuming an entire city. It's gone. But that's really more the exception than the rule. Usually what happens is God gives people over to their sins. He says, you want that? Okay. You're going to get it. Good and hard and repeatedly. <laughs> You'll see what comes of that. And that's often the thing that does people in. When God gives them over to their own lusts, to their desires. We're told, too, that uh, the pits that are dug for the righteous, the wicked fall into themselves. There's that marvelous passage from Psalm 141, verse 10, where that's noted, and then there's a passage in Proverbs. Of course, there's more than one in Proverbs where that's described. By the way, if you want to know how to conduct yourself in the presence of your enemies, a great place to go for that is Psalm 29, Verses 6 through uh, 16, you're told how it works right there. If you follow that advice, you'll come out smelling like a rose, and they'll come out smelling like they smell. But then, the way this all ends is a reference to a series of mouths. Did you notice that? So, we're told there that uh, in verse 10, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Those who don't feed on God become food. Those who don't feed upon God become food themselves. The sinful consume each other. One of the things that you see on the left, particularly anyone who's been inspired by the French Revolution, is that essentially the revolutionaries, the Jacobin, just basically turn on themselves in the end and wipe themselves out. It's happened again and again and again and again and again, and it will happen again. Don't be dismayed. Things may look dark at the moment. The story's not over. In fact, I think I can see the light beginning to break in certain places. The story's not over. And there's not a whole lot we'll need to do except watch. Watch the wicked destroy themselves. And when that occurs, the king will rejoice, we're told, and then we will exalt because we are dedicated to the king and the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Jackals will eat with their mouths. We will praise God with our mouths and the mouths of the liars will be stopped. When we think about our enemies, one of the, those enemies is Death. Isn't it remarkable how Christ defeats death? Death defeats itself by killing the Savior. And Christ wins his victory in that most remarkable and paradoxical of ways. And in a few moments, we're going to spend some time remembering what he's done for us. But God has a way of using even the schemes of the wicked. This is the marvelous thing about the providence of God. You can't outthink God. You can't outsmart God. No matter what scheme you dream up, guess who falls into the pit? You. There are people who are setting traps for you and me right now. Now, we may suffer. Christians have suffered repeatedly in the past. But in the end, in the end, because Christ has defeated death by allowing death to have its way with him, you and I can rest assured that even death can't beat you and me. I had a friend named Bruce Wall. He was a a clerk in the juvenile court of Boston. And he would get threatened by people all the time. Uh, Gang, sort of leaders would threaten him. And his response was, this this beautiful response, you can't threaten a man with heaven. That's all you got? Go for it. (laughs) Now, it takes a lot of faith to say that. I don't mean to be flippant. It takes a lot of faith to say that. But I pray that you and I will have that kind of faith when it's called for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and thank you for all that you've done to defeat our enemies for us. And we even pray for our enemies, and we ask you, Lord, to save them from themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.